But we're in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. The title of the message today is Complicated Hypocrites. And if you feel like that's talking to you, it's talking to me. But we'll uh, first get a quote from Dr. Paul T. Butler. He said this, Between chapters 6 and 7 of John's Gospel, an interval of approximately six months occurs. During this interval of six months, Jesus carries on a relatively private ministry in Galilee in order to give his disciples some much-needed personal instruction. He retires into a semi-privacy and travels to north of Galilee. John makes only a brief note of this extended ministry in the first verse of chapter 7. You can read the other Gospels and see there's actually a lot that happens in that six months. John just simply fast-forwards. We get chapter 6, we jump into chapter 7, and six months has passed. It's not an easy thing to notice when you're just reading through John, but when you have the others, you can tell this is going on. <clears throat> There's an interesting story. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a, a lawyer uh, who, with a PhD, uh, a guy by the name of David, don't remember his last name, but he tells a story that it grabs my attention each time I hear it, you can find it uh, out there on the uh, World Wide Web, I'm sure. But if you've ever flown in a small plane, uh, you know what that feels like compared to a big commercial plane. Well, he had a, um, a ticket to get on a big commercial plane, and a pastor came up to him and said, and he, he and another guy were traveling for legal stuff, um, he said, hey, I've got a small plane, and you can save your ticket. You can get a refund on it. Don't use it, and you guys can come with me. I've got space for both of you and your stuff. And against his better judgment, he thought, I'll save some money. So he thought he'd get on this smaller plane. He was in the passenger seat in the front. His friend was behind them. And if you've seen how these work, you've got controls on both sides. As they go up into the higher parts of the atmosphere, they come into some rather thick clouds. And as they're heading into the clouds, the pilot, pastor, says to his right seat passenger, um, I don't do well in clouds. And he's like, what? I don't do well in clouds. And he's thinking to himself, there were clouds when we were on the ground. We saw clouds. Why did you invite me in your plane if you don't do well? And then as they enter into the clouds and he could see nothing, the pilot passed out. He tried to wake him. He couldn't wake him. So the guy in the backseat says, we're going to die, aren't we? <laughs> and he says, there's a good chance. Now, before they took off, he did insist on praying, so that was good. But as they were flying, he 
he knew they were in trouble, so he handed the, a set of headphones with a mic. You, I don't know if you know, you can plug multiple ones in so that you can communicate with other people. They're noisy. And communicate with people on the ground. So his, he so, told his friend, he said, get some help, because he's like looking at all these controls. If you've seen what they look like, it's hard to figure out what do you do. So the guy in the back seat with his headphones and microphone said, hello, hello. Obviously clueless as to protocol for radio dialogue. And somebody else says, hello, hello. Do you not know how to speak on this, this channel? No, we don't know anything. Well, who are you? Well, we're in a plane, pilot's out. We, we don't know how to control this. We're flying. Um, the other pilot of another plane said, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start circling around until we can get you some help because I don't want to lose, I don't know where you are, and I don't want to lose the signal between you and me. So he did whatever he did to get him in touch with Anchorage, a strong tower that could find them on the radar. So the tower in Anchorage says, let me, let me see, do I have this right? You are out there and you're in clouds and you don't know where you are, you don't know how to operate the plane, and nobody on the plane at this point in time can operate the plane. Yep. So, okay, well, first, I need to find out where you are. So, he found out where he was. He said, okay, I've located where you are. You're four minutes away from crashing into a mountain. I need you to listen to my voice. He didn't think for a minute, why should I listen to him? Why should I listen to that voice? <laughs> He's thinking, this guy can help me not crash into this mountain. So he listened carefully to his voice because utter destruction was in front of him. And he steered him around the mountain, got him to land a plane. He'd never even taken off in a plane, and he was able to land the plane. They put him up in a hotel for the night, and then there was a knock on the door. He answered the door, and there was a stranger in front of him. And the stranger said to him, David, one word, as if I recall the story correctly, and this instantly the lawyer knew, you're the voice. I know that voice. And I hope you know the voice as God speaks to us today. Six months have passed. Many people have left Jesus. His disciples stayed with him. People are believing because he's done some incredible stuff. And the one that's really passing around is the one where he took a man who had been an invalid for so many years, healed him. He's walking around in front of everybody. And it's really throwing a a kink into the minds of the Jewish leaders. They don't like this. He did it on the Sabbath. And uh, who is this guy? So John chapter 7, verse 1, we pick up. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, I want to show you in a footnote, and I created my own. There's a footnote in your Bible more than likely, but there is a Greek word you can see there that is an ethnonym. Maybe you've never even heard of this. It's an ancient Greek ethnonym. It's not even a Koine 
Greek word, but it's, it's in the Koine Greek because it was borrowed from the ancient Greek. And you can see how to say it, laudai oi. And it means to side with or imitate Judeans. And this is a reference to the Jews. The Judeans were people who uh, were known to be, basically, this reference is talking about Jewish leaders and their adherents. That's the reference. So when you see this in this context, you'll see it a couple more times, that's the same word, and it's talking about Jewish leaders and their adherents. That's the reference. And they're wanting to kill him. Now, know that this is inspired. Jesus knows this. He knows their John was supposed to write this, and it's very true. They want to kill him. John's already said this earlier. So we'll move to, well, before we move to verse 2, I want to tell you something. People look at this and they go, well, was he afraid? It appears that he was trying to make sure that he was doing things in God's timing and not man's. Man's timing doesn't always align with God's timing. I mean, a lot of people think it does. A lot of people think, well, God's will just always happens. No, it does not. Read any part of your Bible. Pay attention to any part of your life. You don't always follow God's will, so God's will doesn't always happen in your own life. So here we are looking at Jesus, who is not going into Judea because the people there are probably going to try to kill him before he gets stuff done he has to get done or make him try to force him to be the kind of king he was not called to be. So now we move into verse 2. Now, the feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And if you are like most, you read that and think, what is that? What's a feast of booths? You know, your mind might, something might come to mind like, well, when you go to these, you know, summer festivals, you know, they have booths set up all over the place. They're celebrating that. Let me help you out. We'll go back to the King James, many of us have read, and look at how it says it. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Oh, now that makes sense. Now, the word there can be translated tabernacle, tents, or booths. That's why it's confusing. But what, what is that about? What, what is that? Well, why don't we go ahead and go back to... Deuteronomy, where it tells us a little bit about this particular one. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13 and following, You shall keep the feast of booths seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, and you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who are within your towns. We'll continue on. Verse 15. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. And now we'll finish the section in Deuteronomy <clears throat> Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of the unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. 
Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. That is an explanation of the Feast of Booths as it is recorded in Scripture. So it's at hand. John chapter 7, verse 3 continues. So his brothers, and that's literally brothers, said to him, leave him here and go to Judea. Or leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And that's a sad note. There's a couple of things to pay attention to, and that is that the Catholic and Orthodox churches actually teach Jesus didn't really have brothers. <laughs> Did you know that? He really didn't have brothers and sisters. Well, here, let me give you, Matthew and Mark say something about this. I'll give you Mark's reference in Mark chapter 6, verse 3 and following. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. He knew they were skeptical. The people in his own town, and even in his own home. And we know that we are taught in Scripture that Jesus was without sin. So maybe you should fast forward to 12-year-old boy Jesus that maybe he demonstrated um, after he was at an age of accountability, you know, uh, 12 years old and older. I don't know what the, that age would be, but we at least would think that when he's held accountable for his actions, he wasn't sinning. And if you've been around a situation where you've got normal kids <laughs> that are doing lots of crazy things, and then you've got the kid that just wants to do right all the time, wants to follow the rules, wants to show respect, that kid. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the other kids get jealous of that kid? And they like to try to find fault with that kid. Of course, they think it might make them feel better if they can make that other one look worse and I won't look so bad because they messed up too. I don't know what the situation was, but what I do know is what Scripture tells me, and that is that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in Him. He had sisters too. We don't know how many. At least two because it's plural. So that's a bigger family than we normally see in today's world. And one of the brothers became a prominent figure. Now, theologians argue about it today, but for most of our history since the New Testament was written, it is understood that the book of James was written by the brother of Jesus, which necessarily means Jesus' brother James was eventually won over. That he did believe. Which is good to know that the most prominent of his brothers became a leader and most likely the author of an inspired book. John chapter 7, verse 6 continues in our text. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, some later manuscripts add the word yet when he says, I'm not going. Some have added yet. I'm not yet going. But that's not necessary because if you read the text, he says, my time has not yet fully come, which we discover the time for him to go there is about to come, but not just yet, not immediately as his brothers go. We discover he does go there, but he has to wait a little bit. He's going to do it God's way. It's interesting that he knows that the world hates him. We're going to learn more about this when we get to John chapter 15. We'll see this is our calling as servants of Jesus. We will be hated too. Christians, if you haven't figured it out yet, your goal is not to try to get liked by everybody. Jesus made it clear, and I don't have this up here for you. You can write it down. In Luke chapter 6, verse 26, beware when all men speak well of you. It shouldn't be your goal to get everybody to speak well of you. Inside of us, we want everybody to like us. It doesn't feel good to be disliked. It, it feels worse to be hated. And if they hated Jesus and you're following Him, they're going to hate you too. John 15 will make all that clearer when we get there. But he tells them that the world is not going to hate his brothers because they're not out there saying your works are evil. But I'm telling them their works are evil, so they hate me. Our text continues in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. No one wanted to be on the wrong side of these powerful elite. So they simply gossiped. And as they gossiped, they had different views. Some said he was a good man. Some said, no, he's misleading people. It was C.S. Lewis that came up with this great trilemma. You can see up behind me the triangle. And the trilemma is essentially made up of three words, and there's two sets of three. You can pick yours, whatever you want. The first one is Jesus had to be Lord. Second one is liar or lunatic. One of the three, he cannot be a good man, just a good man. There are other religions outside of Christianity that try to say that uh, Jesus was just one a, a good prophet. Could he be a good prophet? Could he be a good man? No, he has to be one of three, according to C.S. Lewis, and I think it's good theology. I think it's good philosophy. He can't be uh, something else. Let me explain. He said 
He was God's, he said he was God. He claimed deity, said he was God's son. He referred to himself as I am in a recent text we read in John. So if he said he is God, then maybe he's God or Lord. And there's a third, uh, one of those second sets of three words. You'll see God up there. Or maybe he was lying. If he wasn't God, maybe he was bad. Let me see the other word up there beside liar. If he's a liar, then he's bad. So, because if he's not God's son, and he's saying that he is, that's not good. But maybe he was a lunatic and just thought he was God's son. Or that other word that you can put with that is mad. So it's Lord, liar, or lunatic, or God, bad, or mad. But he can't be just a good prophet. He can't be just a good man. That makes no sense. A good man would, would not claim he's God. Mm-mm. No. So he's either who he said he was, or he's not. Can't say, well, he was a good prophet, but he wasn't Jesus, the Son of God. Well, he said he was. One of you's lying. One of you's making something up. So either he's who he said he was or not. Don't try to say he's something else. Okay. So their argument's bad, but they put it out there. He's a good man. No, he's more than that. We pick up with verse 14 in our text. About the middle of the feast, remember it's a seven-day feast, so day three or four, Jesus went up into the temple, whoa, that's bold, and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, the idea is their mouths are hanging open, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Some manuscripts say has knowledge of the scrolls. He understands the Bible. How does he understand the Bible so well, and we don't know that he's been to any special school? So that's what they're saying. We pick up with verse 16. Oh, no, we don't. Let's not go that far. Let's go to, yeah, 16. So Jesus answered them, My, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he knew what they were saying. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Let's not just read past this and pass over the meaning because it's significant. This, is, this can be a very good visual in your head. If we don't get it on our own, maybe I can plan it for you on the screen that's behind me. So first, let's look at God's will. You'll see it come up behind me as an arrow that is facing upward symbolizing that God's will is best and it's going to lead you to the right place. God's will always is upward. Let's look at my will. This would represent my will, your will, individual's will that's not always pointing in the same direction. Now, watch as the slide changes because I'll show you now the arrow on my will is pointing up. Now, I want you to also watch this as JC uh, clicks this to align it. Notice when my will doesn't just point in the same direction, if it gets with and behind, together with God. If, our, if God's will 
if we align our will with God's will, look at this, and I want you to see this up behind me. If we will align with God's will, we will know. We will know what? Leave it there. If we align with God's will, we will know. Leave it there. So what do you mean, though? Know what? You apply that where it goes in your life. If you See what it says in the text. If, we, if our will is God's will, then we'll know whether or not Jesus is teaching His own words or the Father's. And if that's the criteria to be able to know, then align with God's will so we will know with anything else. It makes sense. Align with God's will and you will understand what? Things. <laughs> Apply it where you will in your life. This text screams at me. Align my will with God's will. God's will is not changing. My will has to align with it. We need to get with the program and align our will with God's will. Jesus taught this earlier when he was teaching. If you'll remember, he had this great, wonderful sermon on the mount, and he taught us how to pray. Your will be done. And at the very end, when he prays to the Father, what does he say three times when Jesus' will was not exactly aligning with his own Father's? May this cup pass from me, but your will be done. He was aligning his will with his Father's. I want your will to be done. It's always better. <laughs> and sometimes we might be tempted in our prayers, we might be tempted to say, I know, I know that's what God wants, but I want, be careful. Because he might give you what you want, and it's never better. His will is always better for you. You can't outsmart God. He knows what's best, so we want to align with his will. Now, he continues, verse 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Now, his brothers earlier were kind of giving him a hard time. Why are you doing these things in secret? Why don't you go ahead and show yourself to everybody? And here, I don't know if his brothers were hearing him say these things. But I can only suspect that they were probably saying those negative things amongst other people. And here is Jesus speaking the truth into it. And it makes sense. He's not seeking his glory. He's seeking the glory of the Father. Verse 19 continues in our text. Has not Moses given you the law? I see it, it's unfolding up behind me, but I want you to pay careful attention to what Jesus is doing. In modern times, we have this thing called drop the mic. When somebody says something, it's like in the old school debates. If somebody at, in a debate like the masterful Alexander Campbell did, when he would finish in a debate and leave the room dumbfounded and convinced of his argument, he dropped the mic. There was no microphone. But in modern terms, it's like drop the mic, boom, you can't say anything else, it's over. That's it. Jesus is about to do this. 
get ready for Jesus, metaphorically speaking, to drop the mic. Okay. He says, has not Moses given you the law? So who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to Jewish people, but he's spotlighting the Jewish leaders and their adherents, the ones who want to kill him. Has not Moses given you the law? And these people are self-appointed experts. Of course, we follow the law. That's our thing. We're the pros. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? What? They pride themselves on making sure everybody else is keeping the law, even the stuff they've added to it. And he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Moses gave you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. I want you to think contextually about what's going on. The miracle that these people are marveling about there in Judea, it's not the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle these people are, because that, was, that got a little weird. They didn't even understand what he was talking about at the end of it all. What they are talking about is this guy told somebody to violate the Sabbath because they made a, an extra rule. You can't have somebody take their mat and walk with it. That's, a, that's working and that's not okay. That's against the rules that we created for the Sabbath. This guy going around telling people to take their mats and walk. Can't be a good guy. And he says, didn't Moses give you the law? Of course, that's why we don't like you. You don't keep the Sabbath. And he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? But the reality is, the Jewish leaders and their adherents were absolutely seeking to kill him. And what he just did is he just highlighted that he knows what's their, their intentions. The whole crowds don't know, but the Jewish leaders and their adherents, they know. I wonder if some of them are thinking, how does he know this? And Jesus answered them, I did one work. Talk about the miracle of the man nobody can deny. This man had mangled legs. He suddenly had muscles and bones and could walk when he couldn't walk at all. He couldn't move himself. He had to have help just to get in the water. So now he's walking around carrying stuff. Jesus said, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Your mouths are hanging open at this miracle I did. They can't deny the miracle. He continues. Verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Drop the mic. Maybe you didn't catch it, so let's just flesh it out. <laughs> There's a joke there, by the way. Um, <laughs> Moses gave the law, which actually came from the fathers, but circumcision, which must be fulfilled. Notice what it says. It, it can't be broken. Circumcision has to happen, has to happen um, on a particular day. Now, if it has to happen on a particular day and if it falls on a Sabbath and you 
must not break the law, so you have to follow the circumcision, which means a person who is capable of doing that work must get it done on the Sabbath. Do you get mad at those people? You get mad at me because I make a whole... You're, you're actually doing a temporary injury to a child, and I healed somebody on the same day. What I did is not... My, what I did is work, and what the circumcision is not. Is that what you're saying? You see what he just did? He dropped the mic, and everybody there is like, oh, right. That's right. We, we, we allow circumcisions to be done on the Sabbath that involves usually more than one person doing some work, and it temporarily causes pain to a child, and he healed a whole man's body on the Sabbath, and all he did was tell him to carry his mat. And so Jesus is saying, you're being completely unspiritual and unreasonable. Drop the mic. Wow, he's pretty good. I don't know if you ever read what Jesus is doing sometimes and marvel yourself and go, whoa, that was pretty masterful how he just did that. <clears throat> I want to give you a, a support scripture before we look at um, kind of the so what. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He demonstrates this on the cross. He shows that even though he was a perfect man, he was willing to die for imperfect people, for you and for me. And you know what? He's even willing, because he did, die for his critics. As Jesus, Jesus loves people. He wants everyone to be closer to the Father. Okay, so don't be complicated hypocrites. Here are some things that we can gather from our text today. Trust Jesus' timing. His, his brothers thought, hey, go show yourself. Why be private about this? Go do it publicly. Mm -mm. Jesus' timing is the right timing. And as you pray and you wonder why God is not answering your prayers, trust His timing. He's hearing you. And second, let Scripture, reasonableness, and facts rule. That's what Jesus did. And that's what He wanted the people to do. It's easier to be critical, though. It's easier to be unscriptural, unreasonable, and not have the facts. Third, and I've got three things under this you'll see in a minute, be open-minded and gracious, not closed-minded and critical. Those that were the adherents of the Jews and the Jews themselves were very closed-minded and not gracious. They were closed-minded and critical. It's easy to be critical. It doesn't take much effort to be critical. It's easy to sit back and fold your hands and close your mind and judge people. We live in a world already where people do this way too much, Christians. Let's not be like the world. 
Let's be more like Jesus. Here's the three things underneath this might help you. Presume the best in others. If you've been to many leadership seminars, classes, or read leadership books, one of the greatest leadership traits you can have is to presume the best in others until they give you reason to think otherwise. Some of you have not done that. You've not been to leadership seminars. You've not read leadership books. But you have worked in environments where there were bosses that presumed the worst in their employees. And they always thought they had to micromanage everything you do because they didn't trust anything you did. And it's a horrible workplace environment. If you have a boss that thinks they have to micromanage everything you do, what's the point of you being there? But a boss that presumes the best, I hired the right person to do the job, they can do the job, and until they start struggling, I don't need to micromanage them. And if you'll notice, Jesus' brothers, who had a perfect brother, did not presume the best in him. They didn't even believe him. The Jewish people that were waiting on the Messiah didn't even see him when he was standing in front of them. They presumed the worst. And the second thing under this last point, consider others better than oneself. Gave you the scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. That's, the, that's what Jesus did on the cross. We were worthy of his sacrifice. Even though he was perfect, he was willing to die. He was sinless. He was willing to die for us who sin so much. And the third thing in that third point is love with foresight. I say that for this reason. Jesus had the foresight to know I've got to do this in God's timing. And the way I have to love these people isn't the way they want me to. My brothers think I have to go do this. God wants me to do something else. I have to think about what's best for them. Even though they're critical of me, I have to do what's best for them. My critics that are criticizing me, the, the Jewish leaders and their adherents, they're not nice. They want to kill him. And he's still thinking, I have to teach them. I have to show them that I love them, even though they hate me. Love with foresight. It's better for them that I go ahead and love them, even if they never love me. I want to help you out here with that visual again. So look up behind me and you see God's will. Pay attention to what's happening I don't know if you noticed, but if you let your will start to align with God's will, everything else will work out. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the drop the mic moments that you show us your brilliance, your omniscience. Thank you for the scripture that constantly highlights that you love us even when we are not demonstrating that we love you. God help us, because we want to show you that we do love you. We want to align our will with your will. In Jesus' name, amen.